Chapter 7 of A Christmas Honeymoon by Francis Amar Matthews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When the West Called to the East. It was a quiet life that Betty led in Limoges, a holy, providential life with far off echoes of Paris and farther off echoes still of all the rest of the world. There were quaint families living in the old town near the stone bridge families who were royalists to the fingertips to whom the corsican and his whole brood were anathema stately personages of noble blood and lineage ladies with wonderful graces and compliments gentlemen of an almost exaggerated courtesy there were the people of the city the traders and exporters the enamel makers heads of the great potteries manufacturers dealers and their wives and daughters and sons there were the voyagers who came and went at the consulate but these betty eschewed what the months and years did with her in their detail of rising and setting of suns and moons new years christmases and the like it is not the provenance of this record to state but even to limoges there did come news one day of the great war that had broken out in the united states following fast on this there arrived one of annie de paster's letters in which there was this paragraph peter van zant has volunteered for the army his regiment has been ordered to the front mrs van zant as she read this was sitting in the garden of her father's chateau in the upper town the high wall covered with vines was ample protection from the passer-by and the tender shade of the poplars served to shield her from the sun on a rustic table stood her breakfast tray in equipage for two betty was not alone one was there with her as she sat with annie's letter spread out before her she heard the tinkle of the fountain on the terrace the cawing of the rooks in their nest the click of the sabots on the pavement of the court where the servants were at work and likewise betty heard the voice of her companion she saw too all these people and things felt the wonderful balm of the breeze perfumed by the flowers from the little beds around her felt the unerring and complacent peacefulness of her environment the superb self-sufficiency that exists in some corners of the world a self-sufficiency so complete that it has in certain instances the strange and subtle power of erasing the storms and stresses of those who come beneath its influences for twelve times twelve months betty radiant irresponsible laughing dancing wilful betty had lived on at limoges as has been set down it is no part of this simple narrative to tell what she went through during her sojourn in the france where she had once so longed to live but the outward quiet had been hers the dull and perhaps deadly average had seemed to set its seal upon colonel revere's daughter peter had never written peter's checks came every month and as regularly were filed away by his father-in-law but never presented for payment never once that morning the charm of the poplars and the gardens and the river below with its lazing craft the faint azure of the sky the drone of the windmill the hum of the bees in the fields of violets on the other side of her terrace 
the distant song of a shepherd on the hills with his flocks, even the voice of the one who was her companion, all suddenly were blurred, blotted out, stamped out of sound, vision, and even remembrance by the overpower of Annie's news. Peter Van Zant has volunteered for the army. His regiment has been ordered to the front. She got up from her seat, threw her thimble, scissors, the garment she was making, to the table, walked to the little gate in the wall, opened it, and stepped forth to the road. Shading her eyes with her hand, she looked to the west. Yes, to the west where her husband was. Husband? Well, yes, certainly. And across from the west there seemed to Betty, out of the immeasurable blue, to stretch toward her soul, a yearning cry. It was not a sob, not an articulated coherence. A strange something that made to say, Come, as nearly as she could define it herself. Then, as her arms, her soul, her mind answered this, the gate behind her was pushed open wider, and the one who was her companion came through, and with tender words lured Betty back into the safety of the gardens and into a semblance of the inertness of the days before Annie's letter had arrived, which lasted for a long, long time. It was near the close of the war in America when another of Annie's letters came. To be sure, there had been scores between them, but no mention of Peter Van Zandt in any one of these, until now Annie spoke. Perhaps you will have seen by the papers, dear, if indeed they reach you, that Peter Van Zandt was taken prisoner by the rebels. He was in Libby for months, if not for a year but has recently been exchanged, with health so impaired by the prison that a fever of some sort has set in, and he lies in Washington City now, in a hospital. Whether in danger or not, I don't find out. It was winter when this letter of Annie's came. It was Christmas Eve, and the town was resounding with music and bells and jollity. Betty sat before the porcelain stove, the one who was with her sat very near on a velvet stool at her feet. Outside the chateau could be heard the Christmas hymns being sung in preparation by the serving people. It was intensely cold. The plains were covered with the exquisite tracery of the frost, even in the very teeth of the piled-up stoves at either end of the long saloon. But to Betty it was burning. Her veins seemed filled with fire— the languid December sun slanted in with its calm, yellow streaks on the polished floor. She threw down the embroidered band she was working on and walked to the window at the west. Ah, yes, the west. She opened the casements, both inner and outer, and the blast blew in scattering her reels and skeins over the floor. To be sure, her companion picked them up. And again the West cried over to Betty's heart, and her heart answered, and nothing that the one could do or say could prevent her this time. On Christmas Day she left Limoges alone for Havre, for America, for New York. Twelve days later she landed, and in an hour more she was at the front door on the street side of the old double house. It had been a day of snow, gray, dark, and melancholy, 
the street lamps were long since shining when betty reached her home and glancing up as she got out of the coach she saw that every window of her old rooms was ablaze who was there had peter been fetched home ill unto death or was he straight and well and able and with his house full of guests for the holiday season while she had these flashing thoughts the coachman had rung the bell and shadow had opened and beheld his mistress supple was behind her swain supple ran down the stoop and took betty's reticule the same reticule the same trunks one of them too was on the box and betty's long shawl and gave her arm to her mistress quite as if her absent had been merely a matter of a few days you see madam the master's orders were to keep your rooms always in readiness and always lighted up every evening until morning so all is quite as you would like we hope so said bridget while the butler stood tall and pompous dealing with the cabman as to the trunk when the coach had rolled away over the snow mrs van zant who had paused in the hall turned to bridget and asked is mr van zant at home no madam mr van zant has never been in this side of the house since you were called away and he hasn't been in the other side of the house for above three years now mr van zant is in hospital in the south somewheres we don't know anything more than that the tears were in miss supple's eyes betty inclined her head then she went up the stairs to her rooms the christmas greens were still fresh and pretty all about for it had been peter's order to dress her rooms with them every year no matter where he might be and this order the faithful pair had always carried out with reverent wistful care bridget went down shadow beckoned to her from his pantry biddy he said noting the tear traces in her eyes the young mistress has come back and now the bands shadow miss supple's tone was that of one horror-struck by the other one's audacity upon whom she placed an eye of fire the mistress is here but where's our young master and shadow of course beat a retreat shadow seemed to himself to be always beating retreats before the object of his affections years made no odds for him bridget obdurate as the unappeased gods would listen to no nuptial overtures and generally concluded these amatory colloquies by leaving the butler much of the opinion that he was an unnatural wretch to think of marrying under the conditions existing in his master's family betty had been home for eight days before she let Ani de paster know of her arrival in those eight days there was no word gotten by her of peter van zant's well or ill fare it was just to wait and wait would he come was he dying had he forgotten her was there some other fairer sweeter woman whom his heart now rested in why not then when she sent annie a note by shadow annie came at once she had news of peter of course betty had it too no well ned davies had gotten back from washington the night before he had seen peter if you please none the worse for his libby imprisonment none the worse of his fever and hospital quite splendidly well and usual stopping at willard's and asking ned how soon he and annie were going to be tied up 
Betty listened, said not a word, and turned the talk wholly towards the patience of Ned Davies and the charms of life in a quaint French town like Limoges. "'And when do you go back, dear, or don't you go back at all?' Annie had asked gently of her friend. "'On Saturday,' Betty replied. "'And when you and Ned are married, you must make the wedding journey over the sea to me, will you?' Annie promised quizzically. She had been putting off that wedding of hers so long that it looked to her now like an agreeable enis fatus, or a delightful jest, although, to be sure, Ned Davies had always to be counted with, and sometimes he did allow himself a restiveness incompatible with Annie's holding out many more years. So Mrs. Van Zant sailed away again on the Saturday, she had left the house on the square for the ship at noon. The sailing was scheduled for one o'clock. At nine that evening, Mr. Van Zant arrived from Washington. Shaddle and Miss Supple had a conference in the kitchen, the result of which was that the butler, when he removed the dessert and set out the cheese and celery and refilled his master's glass, took covert occasion to slip beneath this last a scrap of paper carefully contrived by his own and the dictating hand of Bridget. It ran this way. Honored sir and master, we dutifully inform you that our mistress, Mrs. Van Zant, returned home on the 6th of January and sailed off this 15th day of the same month, your respectful and obedient servants, Shaddle and Bridget. Shaddle did not remain in the dining-room after he had placed the cheese, etc. He, in fact, got away to his pantry, down his little corkscrew back stairs, and into the kitchen as quickly as he could, where Bridget awaited him. He sat bravely in her rocking-chair, a liberty he seldom allowed himself, and swayed back and forth. "'What's the matter, Shad?' asked the serving-woman. "'The matter is—' Shaddle spoke with an unwanted asperity. That if the master could only have reached home before the mistress left, the bands. Shaddle, I'm surprised at you. Hush. Shaddle hushed. End of chapter 7